This podcast is proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli. Hello everyone and welcome to Tampa Tantrum episode the 80. Uh, my name is Steve Layton and we've decided this week to go and have a special guest because me and Colin now hate each other uh, and we can't bear to speak to each other more than every four or five weeks. Um, so I'm very kindly joined by Sarah Morocci. Am I saying Morocci right? It's Morocci. Maraki, no would get it wrong. I'm the worst. I, so I like I do the WBC uh, MC in, and whenever I do it, I I'm always like, how do I pronounce your name? And I'll always ruin it when I go up and say it the way that I wanted to say it anyway. Um, pronunciation is not my forte. Um, but Sarah, for those, uh, I mean, you've been a, a, a on Tampa Tantrum a couple of times now. Um, was it at Roasters Guild? I think. Correct time, in Estonia. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And then also um, at Gothenburg um, with uh, the Barista League. Yep. And yeah. I, I I mean, I've, I asked you if you would come on and do this because I feel that I kind of scratched the surface of really uh, uh, of the knowledge that you have and the experiences that you have in those things. And I kind of walked away from both of those events going, I kind of wish I knew a little bit more. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Of course. My pleasure. Uh, uh, no, it, it, it's great. So for those who don't know you, right. can you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of your background up to the uh, up to your current role? And we'll go into that a little bit more after. OK, so, yes, my name is Sarah. I'm Italian and uh, but I lived a little bit all over um, a lot in the UK. That's where I graduated uh, from uni. Um, my background is actually in development. I studied uh, international development at, uh, uh, back at uni. And so my first job was working for an Italian NGO in Kenya. And I was uh, 20-something. Um, and after a couple of years in development, I sort of uh, grew a little bit wary of some of the approaches to work uh, that my, my, my organization had. And I wanted to do something different. Back in those days is when social enterprises started to become a thing and I knew very little about it, uh, but I quickly learned that there was a specialty uh, coffee importing company um, that wanted to hire a project manager for Tanzania. Um, so I was intrigued by uh, the fact that it was a social enterprise and the fact that it dealt with coffee. Uh, back in those days, I felt oh, Italians have to drink the best coffee and we have the best in the world. So I'm <laughs> clearly very qualified for this job. Um, of course, <laughs> so, as every Italian would be. Right. <laughs> uh, so I applied and uh, I got the job and uh, then I moved to Tanzania and um, started to learn everything about specialty coffee and uh, learning a lot about production uh, and processing and quality control. So kind of an origin take on everything. Um, and then uh, I spent about eight years uh, with this company, Sustainable Harvest. And uh, my last four years, I was in Portland, Oregon, um, doing mm -hmm. uh, procurement uh, for the company. And uh, I was leading a team of about eight people with origin offices in Central and South America and, and of course, East Africa. Um, and after that, I just, uh, you know, sort of felt like the need to come back to Europe after being a bit all over. And, uh, so I did my partner and I moved to Amsterdam and, uh, 
that's the time when just it didn't really work out with sustainable harvest in you know they don't they never really needed uh, european operations and and i think you know the big move helped me sort of decide to take a you know a completely different direction and uh i was approached to do some consulting work um in tanzania and uh that sort of let me think hey maybe maybe consulting could be my next uh, my next big gig and and i sort of tried it out for six months uh, worked out um started to get clients and so i decided okay let this is official i'm starting um i'm starting <laughs> vuna yeah so so I, I i just going back to sustainable harvest yeah. i I've, I've always had great admiration for what they did because uh-huh. i think they were one of the very early adopters of uh, like coffee with a conscience if you like and and kind of looking at, at what they were doing like what was that like at that time because i'm 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 guessing it was fairly like what 2007 2008 would that be yeah, right correct correct yeah. it was so my that time i mean it was just crazy wasn't it, what was happening there i mean i, I met quite a few because i mean let's not beat around the bush sustainable harvest are a huge company right. and like they were at cup of excellences they were in the same farms that i was visiting as a very very small roaster um and and really trying to push that quality envelope but really pushing the the whole uh, you know ethical approach to it as well mm-hmm. yeah and, and so, I, so, I mean what was yeah. it like to be involved in that it was it was it was extremely refreshing and and mind-blowing at the same time uh i it was just a way of the way that they talked about business was so different from everything that I, I've heard before. And, uh, I will always remember this. The first time I, I applied for the job with sustainable harvest at the very, very beginning, I thought it was actually an NGO. Um, <laughs> and because of the way that they were talking and, and their communication style and everything only later, um, you know, really literally few minutes before the interview, I realized that it was actually, a for-profit company and 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 that's that was so unusual for me at the time and so refreshing and uh and that's really what uh really intrigued me about the company and uh definitely in those years uh sustainable harvest was sort of leading the charges among other companies of course they're not the only ones but one of the few companies back in those days that were really trying to push for direct relationships right so connecting roasters and producers and 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 taking the role of the importer as a very important intermediary and 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 sort of carrying the responsibility of making sure that the relationship uh between producer and and roaster is honored is taken care of and it's looked after um i think now we're all used to uh to this approach but 10 years ago it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the case and it definitely wasn't um the case back in east africa with a lot of uh you know the sort of the, the way that uh, uh producers were used to uh do business uh was very different from sustainable harvest approach so it was it was it was great i i always felt i was part of a movement more than just a company yeah i mean how how difficult was that then kind of trying to have that ethical approach in the very early days and to tie that which i think you know sustainable harvest can be very much in the, that quality bracket of you know it's got to have these cut properties along with uh trying to be a, a more ethical approach because i think that was particularly hard back then right well i remember there was uh when i was speaking with uh with david the the the, the founder and the owner of sustainable harvest he always he always tell me i don't hire people because of their 
skills, I hire people because of their values. And, yeah. and he told me, you know, skills I can teach, but I can't teach values. And I think that that was sort of, again, beautiful approach uh, to, 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 to hiring uh, your staff. And, and, and I, I, that's how I felt. I think that if you have the right values in place, then you can learn about, you can learn the hard skills, you can learn how to cop, you can learn how to speak Spanish. Uh, but if you don't feel empathetic, if you don't feel that the, we have a role to play aside from uh, being profit driven, then that's, it's going to be a lot harder. Um, so I think um, the way that uh, we were hired was, was very smart and it was about values, about what you believe in and wanted to make a difference. And so I think that spoke um, uh, to a lot of people and we, we ended up with, with a great team of, of, of folks. I'm trying. I'm trying to think, and I'm probably going to embarrass myself here because by, <laughs> by getting the name wrong. But was it was it Chrissy who was one of the green buyers? Um, that's a sustainable. And was it Beth Ann as well? No, um, uh, Jorge Cuevas. Yeah. Jorge Cuevas was the sort of the the first uh, the, the the sort of the uh, the right arm uh, for for David. So he's he's the first uh, buyer that 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 we had, and then after that we've had we've had other uh, mainly all from from Portland, Oregon. But I think Jorge was the first person that uh, David hired. Um, also, the, they established the first origin office of Sustainable Harvest in Mexico. Um, so that was established not even, you know, probably 1997, 1998. So that was the first origin office led by Jorge Cuevas. And I mean, that, that 97, it's kind of almost the dark ages of specialty, you know, it's like, it's what yeah. it really, really is. And, and, but then the, the whole company grew so much because of the, the Whole Foods connection and like, and you just started to see more and more of that. Was it difficult to scale as that was growing? Um, not so much. I think scaling wasn't, wasn't, wasn't an issue, especially at the very beginning, because the, the playing, you know, the playing field wasn't very, wasn't very crowded. Um, I think that specialty coffee got more sophisticated. Uh, it wasn't just about certified coffee. It was also about, or, or you know, a good cup of coffee, like a, you know, a, a 90, sorry, an 80 plus coffee. Uh, I think that when I joined Sustainable Harvest, that's when the concept of micro lots started to be introduced. And I remember the first, mm. the first time I heard it, I was maybe a year into my job and I just couldn't wrap my head around what is a micro lot and why do we need to source a micro lot? Um, yeah. Right. So it was, it was that I moment. still question it today. I'm still like, why do we need them? But like, yeah, I, I, I it's it, it, back then it must've been completely alien. It was very, it, it was very new, and there was obviously some roaster company that uh, that that really uh, embraced the the the, the micro lot approach and made it theirs, and they felt like they there was a need, there was a space for not just specialty coffee, but <laughs> exquisite specialty coffee. Um, mm. And there was always the argument, well, if you know, if a producer is uh, is able to produce a higher uh, you know, better quality, a better cup than his neighbors. Shouldn't he be rewarded for uh, for the extra value that he created? So that was that was sort of the 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 the, the discussion the discussion back then. And you know, ten years ten years uh, uh, you know after, you can see that clearly 
um, not only it, it was an interesting approach, but it's 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 an approach that that, that, that obviously the market embraced. And there's tons of microlots. We're surrounded by microlots, and there's producers that have built their entire business model around microlots. Not a lot of them, but some have, and I think that they're they're successful. So it, it, I was glad that I I was involved in that early on conversation for sure. And I think you know it. It was seems it, now looking back, it seems a fairly obvious step because you know we we all want traceability in the things that we're consuming. You know, down from you know the the where our meat is, you know it, the animals come from to you know where our vegetables are grown and things like that. And I, it, it should be no different, I guess, with coffee. But I mean, we were at a time where it was just you know it's from Mexico, you know, not necessarily from a farm even. And, and, right. and now we're getting down to you know little uh, tablons of land. <laughs> and you know like real micro lots of, of of tiny proportions right so fast forward into to kind of um where we we left your your story of like uh vuna like so what is vuna and and, and why okay yeah so vuna actually is is taken from the swahili word kuvuna which means to to harvest, right? So it was one of the first coffee word that I learned in Swahili, and I wanted to name my company after, uh, after you know, with a Swahili name because I everything I own, everything I know about coffee, I owe it to uh, the producers in in Tanzania. So in a way, it's my I'm trying to uh, reconnect with 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 my own with my own history. Um, my experience is is on the production and processing side. I, I can pull shots of espresso, but I'm really bad at it. Um, and so, and I definitely don't know retail. So of course, all my skill set comes in working with producers, uh, working on quality, on processing, on productions, and, and, and structuring the work all the way up to the FOB point. Um, then of course, I've been involved in, in buying coffee, so I understand uh, uh, pricing and, and contract dynamics. So I wanted to make my skill sets available uh, for organizations and companies that are uh, working with uh, producers, producers at origin. Um, and so sort of threw my hat in the ring because uh, I think that uh, there is a ton of work that we can do at origin um, to improve uh, supply chain mechanisms and that's sort of where I feel like I can add the most uh, to the industry so that's that's my focus and I wanted to do it independently because I I want to be able to I want to have the freedom to choose who I want to work with and embrace the projects that I feel really passionate about and uh, I have my own vision and I, I want to be able to uh, fight for my own vision um, the same way that I, I think I hope I fought hard for sustainable harvest vision but now I want to I want to do my own um, and I have you know uh, I'm a little ambitious and I have big dreams and I just want to give back as much as I can so you touched on there that you know kind of Vunri is very much about logistics and it's, a, it's a, like the the uh, the not necessarily logistics, but the, like the, the 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 supply chain part right. of it. But like, right. tell us like like typically what what you would do and who your typical client would be. So like, who who are you aiming these services at? And and and, and give us a rundown of like you know the, the the kind of things you do. Okay, so a typical client would be a non-profit organization 
that uh, has uh, that is currently working uh, in strengthening or supporting rural value chains and coffee could be one of them. So they would hire me to uh, work with producer organizations on how to improve the quality of, of their coffee. So training on picking, uh, training on production practices, uh, how you set and, up. And you would go and do that training? Yes, I would. So yeah. I would travel okay. to Origin and set up training sessions uh, with uh, the clients and directly with the producers and say, train them on how to set up a, a, a drying station. Uh, sort of that's the work I'm doing right now in Myanmar or train them on how to uh, to pick and sort coffee uh, properly um, or train them on how to uh, set up a system for daily lot tracking and, and where is house lot tracking. Um, or I would train I would train producers on how to uh, create their cost structures uh, to determine what their cost of productions are and give them a few pointers on how, for example, they can determine uh, what is a what is a price on an FOB price that they can negotiate with a potential client. So those are some of the examples um, on how I on what I would do for under what I would call the origin development. Um, and uh, another aspect that I've been more heavily involved is uh, price risk management. So again, uh, the social lenders or nonprofit organizations have hired me in the past to run price risk management workshops uh, with producers who are interested in learning on more about price risk management tools and or how to uh, define a, a sound uh, price risk management strategy for their organization. Um, so that's another area that is 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 quickly grow, growing in my portfolio. So, like, j- just to just for those who d- don't necessarily understand it, so in, like an NGO, where would their funding come from? How would they be supported? So, like, w- and why would they look for an external consultant to 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 help them with these different things? Right. So, a lot of funding for this type of uh, work comes from USAID. USAID yeah. has been a huge donor. Uh, there's also private donors, um, but I think USAID has been uh, the most uh, the most common donor for this type of project. The reason why they hire a consultant is because maybe they, they, they as an NGO, they have project managers and, uh, and they hire maybe uh, coffee technicians, but sometimes they may lack uh, some of the inside knowledge of how the specialty coffee industry works and on, on how, to, how to move from a commodity product to a specialty product, how to make that the jump in terms of quality, so it's 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 very specific services uh, that that they need. So they rather have their own team to run the project and then source the expertise as per needed. You must be looking on it with horror with the change in the political landscape in the U.S. Then with USAID being such a, a big supporter of these things, do you think that's going to have an effect at Origin? Uh, there's a lot of uh, concern around that for sure. I mean, I I I think uh, what what the sort of the rumors say that we should expect about a thirty percent cut um, on a lot of these USAID programs. Um, I don't know what that. I I don't follow the politics uh, too closely, so I'm not sure whether or not that's that 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 would be the case necessarily. But I definitely feel that uh, yes, there there will be some. Uh, there will definitely be some uh, defunding uh, of programs. 
um, we don't know whether that will affect commodities, right? As 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 yeah. a as as such, but definitely it sounds like USAID will scale down. So that's not that's not great news, but it's also an opportunity for for you know organizations and and people like me to think outside of well who else is out there that can be um, supporting the work and uh, and so maybe gives us an opportunity to find different allies. Yeah. Yeah, I always find it interesting with uh, I was kind of involved um, fairly heavily in Bolivia with the Cup of Excellence when it was there, mm -hmm. which was a US AID uh, funded right. program. And when the change of regime came in with Morales, mm -hmm. um, you know, Morales basically kicked US AID out of Bolivia and said, <laughs> don't come back. Um, and the way that that ended up leaving the um you know the, the the coffee infrastructure in bolivia was just devastating i mean it just completely wiped out virtually an industry um and and the roles of these um you know aid organizations just so important sometimes and particularly in some of the most you know the most needed countries it's it, it's scary to think that uh, foreign aid you know kind of gets cut it's it's one thing i'm i'm proud as an englishman that we we actually fulfill our commitments of, of like you know of a gdp and, and aid right. things that many countries don't and I, I think it's just so important to to look after i mean we have to to be fair because we've got a lot of things to say sorry for um <laughs> we we colonized a lot of people um but it, it it's just so important to have those that that infrastructure there for um you know, for for aid to be able to help people get out of the the the, the messes that they're in. Definitely. Um, so so like you've you've been um you know you you've been at Origin and and that's what we've just talked about there is mm -hmm. is one of the challenges facing. What what are the biggest challenges facing you know you in doing your job when you go out to these producing countries? What are the kind of things you come up against? I think that the the things that I'm most concerned about. Um, and, and, and mindful is that even if I may uh, own or have some, some hard skills, think for example, um, you know, I know how to cup or I, I know how, how I know how to set up a drying station or a washing stations and so forth. These are all hard skills, right? And those mm -hmm. are in a way, those are the, 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 that's the type of knowledge and expertise that it's, you can easily share and, and deliver. Uh, the problem is that those hard skills um, don't, you know, don't come in a vacuum, and so you you are thrown into a different country uh, where you may or may not speak the language. You're definitely not aware. At least I put myself in that category. I'm definitely not always aware of uh, social norms and uh, internal trade dynamics, um, internal value chain dynamics. So sometimes even when you travel and you have the best intentions um, uh, to, uh, to support and provide the expertise that is needed on the ground, I always remind myself, do not disrupt and observe first, immerse yourself in, uh, allow yourself to learn about the context in which you're operating and only then figure out a way, what is the best way for me to deliver my, uh, my knowledge? Um, how do mm -hmm. I interact with the locals? And, uh, and so that's the part where I think as international consultants, we need to be extremely mindful because I think sometimes we travel to origin and, and with the best intentions, but there's a little bit of, I don't, maybe cultural imperialism coming like, I know it all, so just listen to me because I have all the answers. And then what happens is that um, 
you know, uh, you just disrupt uh, dynamics that shouldn't be disrupted. And then all of a sudden, the you know, good work turns into poor quality work. And, uh, and that's, uh, you know, you probably heard it before. It's like, ah, just these people don't listen, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, you probably didn't create the right environment or you didn't allow yourself um, to learn enough about the, the country that is hosting you and their culture and the way that they like to do things. And that's probably why the quality of the work isn't great. But um, that, that to me is always, always the challenge, uh, trying to be mindful and, 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 and I think, um, you know, I, we need to be very humble in, in that, in that sense, you know, um, and yeah, be, try to avoid, uh, coming across as arrogant. I know it all and I have the answers, um, because probably we, we don't, right? So the trick is being able to, uh, develop some soft skills so that your hard skills can be can be passed on and actually be effective at origin oh amen like I, i'm just sat here like nodding my head very furiously <laughs> going yes yeah. like i you know i travel i travel a lot and and you know i go to lots of lots of different countries and i quite often cross paths with different buyers when we'll be visiting somewhere or whatever and the, i cringe so much when people are just there oh you need to do this or you should right. do this and right. and it's just like honestly and honestly if a coffee producer comes to my roastery and stands on my shoulder saying oh you're not doing that right you need to do it like this i'm going to tell him to go away you know and and, right. and our coffee farmers should really tell roasters and green buyers exactly the same because we're not coffee farmers you know and then and you know you you have a a, a more a more holistic set of skills to be able to help producers in it than majority of green buyers I've spoken to and certainly roasters. Um, and it's the worst thing in the world to try and tell somebody what to do. And I, I'm trying to think of a word of like colonial explain or something where, you know, we kind of go <laughs> in and we, we take we take this kind of, oh, well, we know best because we know what customers want. Well, that, that may be true, but we actually don't know the challenges and the unique set of circumstances for a region, a country, a continent, you know, and sure. there's just so many individual things that make up... Um, in, you know, growing a coffee grower right. that we really, I'm, I, I, I often get asked by producers, you know, well, what do you think? And I say, well, look, I, I always start it with the, I know nothing about your job. Um, right. What I would like is these things, but I don't even know if that's possible. Right. Um, and, and, and trying, as you say, being humble is something I struggle with because I'm quite arrogant, but um, <laughs> like you have to be humble in those situations that I, we don't know, we don't know about, um, you know how to produce coffee in every single situation yes we may have seen something that worked in guatemala but doesn't mean that that's going to work in bolivia you know it, it, there's just so many d different parts to it isn't there yeah um, so you've been involved in lots of um our discussions about certifications um and uh, that it really feels not not just uh you know we, the two times we've done it it's actually not something that we've come forward and wanted to do it's it's something that first of all roasters guild asked us to and then mm -hmm. Stephen maloney at barista league also wanted to go a little further into it mm -hmm. um, why do you think it's such a hot topic at the moment why do you think it's kind of it feels like it's almost come back yes I totally agree because this is a conversation that we've had um, and it, it feels very 2000 2008, 2010 type. Um, but then it? it's, yeah, it's like, <laughs> I, I think it comes, it, it, it's back because people, especially the new generation of, of coffee professionals, um, they 
everybody's asking themselves, well, coffee is in such a state of crisis or that's what everybody says. So what should we do? What's the right approach? How, how can we, how can we make it better? And so, so that, that's, that's, I think that that's really the question. And so then people are like, well, we want to know more about certifications and direct trade. What's the best sourcing model? What's the most successful uh, sourcing model? What, what, what model is going to fix the problem that we have the fastest and the most effective way. And, and so I think that that's why we are sort of looking back at certification um, schemes and direct trade and just overall the whole approach to um, sourcing models. What's the best sourcing model given, given, given the context in which we, we, are, we are trading? Um, so I think that that's why it's become more and more relevant again. I think I think I've been thinking a lot about this question because I, I I knew this this conversation was coming up between us and I, I've been mm-hmm. looking forward to it and trying to think of questions and like I I think it's twofold I think first of all we've got a new generation of of you know green buyers and roasters and and baristas who missed the initial. 2007 2010 mm-hmm. memo, yeah. um, and, and and are just catching up with it but but I think. I also like to think, and, I, and I'm I'm really hoping this is true. Uh, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on it. That we're actually more, we seem to be a little bit more open-minded as an industry now than we were back then. It seemed to be that we were trying to fight everybody, whereas now I think we're trying to understand each other's place in the market a little more. Would you agree? Definitely, yes. There was a little bit of a competition. Uh, it felt like certifications and direct trade were somehow competing. Um, my trading model had beat up your trading model exactly exactly <laughs> which which again speaks again about sort of uh, the, the sort of the the, the arrogance and maybe in cultural imperialism that we were talking about like I have all the I, answers I actually I actually think Sarah I think it was a little bit more uh it was like we were we it was a lack of confidence in what we were doing oh, more than anything else yeah. I, I I think when you don't have you, you're not you know, you're not hundred percent sure you're right. You're quite often going to fight your corner a lot more than you know than if you have a little bit more confidence in what you're doing. Right, right. That's true. That's a good point. It could be, and and I think at at the point where we are today, I just I just feel like we need to have more than a sourcing model. We need to be able to trade coffee and interact with our value chains uh, as uh, you know differently because all you know the different producers different coffees different roasters need different things and yeah. one sourcing model uh is just isn't isn't enough and it, it won't be able to uh be inclusive of all the producers coffee producers that are uh growing coffee today and it won't work for all the coffee roasters that are uh roasting coffee today so it's very limiting to just think of a sourcing model, um, and so I, the, 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 I think that the discussion, it's it's a really interesting discussion. Um, but the way I want to take it is, well, we have all these different sourcing models, and for each, you have advantages and disadvantages, strengths and weaknesses, and how can we make all of these models more successful, more effective um, in what they try to achieve? Um, so I, I think that that's where I would like the discussion to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot a little. Yes. Because uh, I like doing that. <laughs> um, 
and I'd like I would like you to give me a balanced argument right. for certifications. So, mm-hmm. what you feel is why certifications exist and why they should continue to be what they are. That is a tough question. Uh, you are definitely no. putting me on the spot here. Uh, but <laughs> uh, well, I I think that they. They, they play a role because they, I mean, they're the, they're the first um, organizations that uh, decided that we needed to uh, create some, some, uh, some structure and some, some standards around the way that we interact with our value chain and the way that we uh, set pricing mechanisms around products. And so the, 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 that was extremely important. And I think it's, you know, whether or not, not all certifications have, have a pricing mechanism, not all certifications uh, necessarily uh, demand a, a, a premium, but they all create standards around how coffee should be produced and how coffee should be, should be traded. And they, I, I think that's, that's, that's absolute absolutely it was genius when it started you know 20 30 years yeah. ago and and i still i still think it's really relevant um and uh, if you go to origin you will meet plenty of producers who were able to uh grow and strengthen their business by working with uh certification schemes uh, plenty, plenty, plenty. I know plenty of organizations. Now you can, you, you know, you can say, yeah, but there's also plenty who don't like certifications. Well, that's that's fine. Uh, I don't, I don't see a conflict there. Um, so I, I think to me that that's that's the role the certifications have played and the role that they keep playing. And also, very important, they were able to uh, sort of step away from the hard business and say, well. It's not just about trading. We have a responsibility as value chains to not just focus on the price and the product, but to look at other variables that are important. So the social uh, component, the environmental component, um, and so forth. And so we were able to understand and tackle issues that before were just not part of our horizon. And and, and they continue doing that. So I think that that's what um, the, 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 the benefit, the advantages of the, the certification brought to, to specialty coffee. I, I don't think it was such an unfair uh, put you on the spot question anyway, yeah. because the, the main reason I wanted you to come on yeah. and, and do this, and, and I've been very much the, 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 the push to get you to come on, because like, I was to Jen, like, can you email Sarah and ask her if she'll do something with Because you actually gave me the most balanced argument for right. certifications when right. you were talking about it. Right? Like, I kind of got it for the first time where I thought like, okay, there is a reason for these things to exist. But you also took it another way, which was like a reason against certifications at the same time. So I'm going to turn the question back around the other way and say, can you give me a balanced argument against certifications? Yeah, I think that the the, the, the big challenge that the the certifications have had and and maybe continue having to a certain extent is is being able to um, communicate and 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 quantify their their impact right so mm-hmm. if i'm a client and and i'm paying a premium um uh, for certified coffee i would love to know what the impact has been at um at origin and i think that that's where some certifications do a better job than others and uh but overall i i i i feel that sometimes uh 
you, roasters or, or intermediaries feel disconnected with the work that happens at Origin. So being able to talk about your impact and being able to make everybody else feel like they're part of, uh, of the work has been the, the, greatest, the greatest challenge. And then of course, quality was never really a focus for the certifications, right? They, of course, back in, you know, back in the days, most quality control labs that were built at Origin were built with the social premium, right? So it's, we don't, I don't have hard evidence, but you know, I've spoken with enough producers to know quality control labs have for the majority been built with the social premiums, not anymore, but they used to. Um, but quality was never like a mission. It was never like one of the goals, like you need to produce 85 plus coffee. So it came to a point where, um, you know, certification were able to check certain boxes, but quality uh, was not necessarily one of them. And then, you know, certain roasters really needed the quality as their number one uh, priority. And they just couldn't get uh, that type of quality necessarily with the producers that were working under certification schemes. And so that's another reason why I think sometimes for some people, certifications just don't necessarily um, don't necessarily work. Um, but I think the impact and, 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 and proving impact at origin has been a really big challenge. And, uh, it took, it took, a, it took some time to, to, for people to wrap their heads around that. Mm. I, I feel, I feel fairly confused about this. And, yeah. and so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure which way I fall, but uh-huh. I kind of heard the argument of, you know, that if you pay more for quality that's you know obviously more sustainable and right. and you know because there's a there's a reason why you're paying more for it than than a charity premium mm-hmm. and is there an argument that you know charity should be charity and you know uh, business and 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 you know they what a thing costs should be a, a different thing i mean d- d- should they be put together in this certification thing or should they be separated of you know you can give x amount more for this coffee and it will help with social premiums blah blah, blah and be very clear right. about that right. um, and and then the cost of the coffee be what the cost of coffee is or, or, or should everybody just push towards quality um because you know if you make something better you get more money for it right i think in an ideal world you would have both and and i explain mm. you why because i i i do agree that if you are able to produce a better product, uh, you should deserve a higher premium, a higher quality premium. So uh, that is just, that that makes sense to me. Uh, but there's, there's a reluctance some... from the market to pay those premiums often though, isn't there? Even right. if they do the work, there's a, from, from, from certain buyers, there will always be a reluctance to do that because that isn't their number one goal, I guess. Right, that's true. But the, 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 the risk of, of just having to, to only stick to that approach is, um, we tend to forget maybe the context in which these stellar producers work. So a lot of, you know, there was a, I was, I'm, what comes to my mind is a couple of ICO lectures uh, that were online. And uh, uh, I think it was, it was Conrad Britt uh, from, uh, from Falcon that said something like, you know, we always, we sometimes we assume that people are poor because they grow coffee. In reality, um, <laughs> The, the, you know, the, the producers live, are born and live and produce coffee in countries that have gone tremendous strife from colonialism, uh, political unrest and revolutions and so forth. Coffee is their only lifeline. They depend on coffee. If you remove coffee, then they'll be even, even poorer. Remember, most of the times our origin 
you know the, the people that have coffee farms and, and have some some stable income um, meaning that you'll receive some money every year the income itself may not be stable but you know that you'll have you you receive something back from your product is already a luxury that others don't have if you don't own land and you live somewhere in rural Tanzania you're much worse off than than a coffee farmer so yeah. so given that is okay so we are going to pay this particular producer a higher price because he produces a better coffee and we expect this uh, income to be reinvested um, in, in, in the farm to maintain quality, but we also think that he's going to be able to send kids to school and pay for medical bills and so forth. But if he lives in a context where there are no schools, hospitals are poor, roads are inexistent, infrastructure is inexistent, and the, 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 there is no there is no such thing as a welfare uh, system. Then you may have a lot of money, or you may have more money than your neighbors, but your quality of life remains the same. Uh, just because you still have to, you're still gonna struggle to access certain basic services that you know might not make you that, that that just have an impact on your quality of life. And that's where I think that the social premium, to a certain extent, has helped has addressed issues that are not necessarily within the context of the trading, but addresses issues that are important for coffee farmers as people, as humans, as family. So why, for example, with the social premium, schools have been built, clinics have been built, roads have been repaired, because those things are important to the community. And you, those are important issues that will affect your quality of life regardless of how much money you have in the bank account. We say money can buy um, most things, but they can buy you the, the, the feeling of living in a community that can take care of itself. So that's why mm-hmm. I think I, I struggle when when people sort of want to split those two as like, of course people need to get paid more for, for a better product, but let's not forget that the context in which they live is also very important. Um, and if you don't address that, they might still not be able, uh, despite higher premiums, to go back the next year and give you um, the same quality that you've been expecting. So that, that that's that's how I look at it. And I know it's 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 a little bit confusing, but that's th- those are all the angles that I try to uh, look at when when I'm asked these questions. I think there's the, the there's the other side of the argument too. As you were talking there, I was kind of going through my, my mind about you know that we think all coffee farmers are poor, and some of the wealthiest people, some of my wealthiest friends, shall we say, are coffee farmers. Right. Like they, they, there are other sides to that coin that people aren't always poor who are coffee producers. And then I think that's where premiums and how those premiums are spent become more important in a in a different kind of certification. So, for instance, uh, one of the families I work with, you know, they've built hospitals, they've built schools within the community on the farms that they own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like vitally important, and that's because not just me, but many other coffee buyers, because they're they're big coffee producers. You know, that's why they're wealthy. Have have taken the premium that we paid, and 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 passed it into the community as well, without a, a a certification as such in there, because they don't fulfil that criteria, but are still reinvesting into the community. And I guess it kind of leads me on to the next question that I'd got lined up to talk to you about was kind of the direct trade model. So mm-hmm. lots of those producers that are quite wealthy. Um, mm-hmm. are getting premiums for their coffee when they've already got 
money, but you know they're right. passing it into their communities, or, or may not be in some cases. I mean, how, how do you feel about that term direct trading? Because for me, it fills me full of dread, horror, makes me want to go in a corner and shake, um, <laughs> just purely because I don't understand what it means. And it means so many different things to different people. But I just wonder what your take on it, being so involved you know, in, in organisations that are quite often embedded in the certification schemes, and then this self-certified term comes up. Right. Well, the the way, and, and I think I meant I might have mentioned this also in our in our panel in, in in Gothenburg is the way I look at it is sort of certifications humanized the coffee, right? Told you, hey, yeah. you know, coffee is not just a black drink. There's actually somebody behind it, and we might want to start looking at the realities of of the people that actually produce the product that you just assume pops up in your kitchen. Um, so they humanized coffee and I think direct trade made it personal, right? So it, mm. it took it to the next level. It says, I don't just want to engage, uh, through a certification scheme. I want to engage directly with, with the producers and I want to have a personal relationship with the people that I trade with. And so it was, it was, it was a very personal need, um, and I think from both sides, I mean, I, I think more and more you need, you have producers that say, I only want to sell to certain people. I want to know exactly where my coffee goes. I want to know exactly how it's going to be uh, roasted and marketed um, in Europe. So it's a need for people to finally break away from sort of old trading scheme and, and make it really, really personal. And and I think that that's, that's, that's beautiful, but because it's personal, it's so hard to define and, and every company and every business owner um, sort of uh, has developed its own personal relationship with their producers. And, and, and every, every relationship is a little different and every company shapes their direct trade systems a little different. Now, there's also been a trend uh, to sort of use direct trade as a marketing tool. And, and mm. the, my word of caution is it's all good, but eventually the, your consumer base will start asking, uh, will, will, will demand more depth, right? So let's say just be, they will ask you, well, what does direct trade mean to you? How are your suppliers or your business partners or origin uh, benefiting? How, what's the impact? So the same thing that sort of I think has happened to certifications where they were asked, well, what's the impact? It will come around to direct trade as well. And I think that if you look at uh, roasters engaged in direct trade, I think that there are some roasters that are doing an incredible job um, and have definitely led the movement. And I think there's some others that perhaps um, are sort of uh, going for the low hanging fruit. Um, And so that's, that's why I think you know, I ultimately direct trade um, uh, creates such so many mixed feelings and and, and emotions. Uh, it's really hard to put 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 your finger on it. I wouldn't like to turn it into a certification necessarily. I, I don't think we need another uh, certification. More than anything, we need accountability. Um, and I, I, that's that's really on the shoulder of both producers and roasters that claim to be engaged in direct trade. I think I'm finding more and more as well that like when you are engaged in those direct purchases, I'm not going to call them direct trades because I want to mm-hmm. avoid it. Mm-hmm. But um, when you're involved, it's actually a fairly competitive market out there now. And actually it's starting to self-police itself a little where you don't right. have a choice but to pay good prices for coffee. Because if you don't, somebody else is knocking on the door wanting to take that. And I, I've certainly found 
that it's become uh, much more much more aggressive uh, you know green buying and people are going to the same sources a lot of the time um, as you know somebody else may be so it, it's been very much self-policing in a way um I think we so what I want to talk about now is like we you know we've talked about certifications and we've right. talked about you know the, the direct trade model and we seem to always in coffee be talking about how we source our raw product and I guess mm -hmm. that's indicative of where it comes from is you know it comes from in general poorer countries uh, developing countries that you know we, we, we that are quite vulnerable to being um a, a kind of what am I looking word I'm looking for kind of overbed by the the, the, the colonial pasts and things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. but why do we have such a hard time deciding what's fair in special why do we beat ourselves up why, why do you think that is I think because the the, the the problems are so complex and 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 there are so many different angles to it that most of the time we you know, when as an individual or as an individual company, there's so much to take on and we all want fix, you know, sort of quick fix solutions. But unfortunately, there aren't any. And 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 I think that that's that's why we sort of we try to move from one solution to the next. It's like, oh, that's fair. Oh, that's fair. And in reality, uh, the, the solution has, is very multifaceted um, and it, it will take it, it takes an industry to to change to change it and and I think that you know with the the our industries I think we're moving in the right direction uh, the unification of the two associations is 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 proof that we we want to scale we want to have greater impact by joining forces um, but I think that that's why it's so hard because the problem is so huge um, and there's so many angles and it's not just about the trade it's the environment I mean, think about just climate change as a one a one big topic. Um, so I think that that's why it's so hard to just say what's fair and, and what's not fair. And uh, maybe we don't have, although we like to think that we are engaging with origin as an industry, uh, I still think that we have a lot of work to do um, in really understanding um, our supply chain partners and where they come from. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a really tough, tough job. Do you think it's confusing and unhelpful to use certifications or, you know, I'm going to lump direct trading there as well, uh -huh. as a tool for making sure that we follow up our responsibilities at Origin, be that through, um, you know, our social and, you know, or, or just pure down to price uh, obligations and then using the same thing as a marketing tool? Do you think that muddies the waters? Um, I'm leading you there, aren't yeah, I? I yeah, really yeah. Ask that in a more open way. Yeah. But, um, that... <laughs> um, that's a, that's a good question. I th I I think the certifications open and and to a certain extent direct trade. It's a way for um, a value chain actor, which wherever you are on the value chain, it gives you a window to learn more and to acquire more tools to have enough checks and balances in your business, right? So if you are a a startup roaster if you want to know how you can uh, create positive impact uh, through your business by you know um, engaging with certifications reading about certifications learning from companies that engage in direct trade can provide you an incredible amount of tools and resources to figure out what's the best way for you to create impact um, yeah. 
your own homework is how you're going to become a successful, profitable company in the market segment in which you're operating. And, and then you have to listen to your customers. You need to have a value proposition uh, to your customers. And that's where I think it's really up to the company to decide, well, who are my customers? Who am I targeting? Uh, who are my, who's my competition? And uh, what's the best marketing tools that I have available in order to be successful. And so certainly certifications and direct trade can be part of your marketing tool. Um, it's part of, you know, it's part of, uh, of what the company stands for and, and your values. So your values should be uh, promoted and should be appealing to your consumers. So I don't, I don't think that um, it's necessarily a negative thing. I think that if you just uh, slap a label on your on your bag and 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 that's it and there is no depth uh, to that, then that's a problem. And eventually, uh, I mean, it's a structural problem, but uh, eventually it will it will land to not the company not being authentic. And right now we all know that uh, consumers demand authenticity. Um, uh, it's especially in, you know, millennials and so forth. So you're setting up yourself for, I think, I mean, and, and I don't own a cafe, but I, th I think that when you lack authenticity, you set yourself up for a lot of questionings and eventually you might not be successful. Um, so yes, just using certifications that are trading as a marketing tool, uh, can be extremely dangerous if you don't have depth to your business model. Oh. It's, 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 I ask you because um, me and Jen did a temper tantrum about, oh, it's, a, it's a few months back now where we were talking about, we ended up on this topic. I, I think it was actually because we were going to talk about it at Roasters Guild. Uh -huh. And um, like about two years ago, I decided that actually I, I removed all direct trade uh, words from my descriptions of each coffee. Mm -hmm. And I did a fairly big blog post, which got, got quite a lot of coverage, still gets a lot of hits now, which was about um, how I've removed, I, I was removing this from everything that we did because I, I didn't understand what it meant. And also that there was a problem with, you know, if I use an exporter, does that mean it's direct trade? You know, if I use right. an importer, but I know the price that's paid, like, does that make it better or worse? And, and, and the whole idea and, 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 and blog post that came out it was like you're just gonna have to trust me that I'm doing a good job and if you want me to prove that then you by all means I can prove that I can put you right. in touch with the people we're buying from and you know and, and you know I can give you contacts and you can do those things but like really at the end of the day it's gonna have to be a trust thing because for the very reason that you said I, I was calling a coffee that I was using an exporter for as direct trade and I've seen lots of other roasters who are doing exactly the same and I'm kind of going is that does that count because there was somebody in the middle, you know, and right. and and it's just it's 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 just such a su such a minefield. I think you're right that people just set themselves up to ask questions that maybe they can't always answer quite as clearly as uh, as as they would like to. Right. Um, and and with that example that you brought up, I what what I would be interested in was well, if you and you know if a roaster buys has a direct relationship with a producer but needs an intermediary to provide a service um, um, in the value chain I, I I think that's perfectly okay uh, mm -hmm. it's okay because because there are certain uh, trading dynamics that just come into play a roaster may not be able to pay a coffee three months before it lands in in its you know on its in its roastery you might not have uh, financing and uh, and so forth. So that would be a very, very important reason why sometimes intermediaries are very important. Now the question is, 
do we know what the cost structure is like so we know exactly what that intermediary is making for their service um do we know exactly how much the producer is receiving if those if 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 there is enough price transparency i don't see a problem um with an intermediary at all and in in a way it's like okay maybe it's not direct it's because it, the product doesn't move from the producer hands directly to the roaster's hands but there is you know the producer and the roaster went when did their homework and went out of the way to make sure that uh, there are no no barriers there is no there are no walls in between in in the supply chain and everybody's very well aware of the services that they're providing the val the added value that they are um, uh, creating and 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 that I, I I think that that's a beautiful supply chain. I, I, I agree. I agree 100%. But I think we're one step away then from saying an importer brings the coffee in and they hold it as a spot coffee and you can have that price transparency back. And then does that become fair trade? Uh, fair trade. Uh, direct, direct trade. trade. Uh, yeah, again, my trade's mixed up here. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, is it? And, and, and I guess I think when it comes to an importer being part of it, I think it does muddy the water a little bit more. It's, it's a slightly different answer that I would give even though you know the price structure I, 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 I've got a coffee that I've worked with for 14 years I found right. a relationship through an importer right. I know exactly how much the producer gets paid right. but I would never ever consider that a direct trade coffee even though there is an intermediary who is the importer bringing that coffee in so I think um, it, it just it, that's the problem with it for me that it's just not clear enough it's not uh, right. the, the, the boundaries of what is acceptable and what isn't um, and, and my boundaries could be completely different to another person who's using the term. Uh, and I, I just don't think it's so helpful sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I, I share the feeling with you. If, if you buy coffee spot from a, an importer and, and you know, the origin, because it's on, it's on the label of the sample that you got, that's uh, that's a stretch. Uh, there is no origin engagement. Um, so without origin engagement, I, I also do think that uh, that's where the boundaries of direct trade are being stretched too much. But, but uh, that, that, that example I gave, I've yeah. been to the farm several times. Right. I know the producer well. I say I know the price structure. I know how much the importer makes on every kilo that I buy. It, it, it's very clear. Right. Um, right. And it, it, it's a very transparent line. But even then... I still would feel incredibly uncomfortable using right. that as a, a, a as a, as a, an example of, you know, a, a direct trade model. But I've seen people do it. Right. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's yeah. that's a challenge. That's that's definitely a challenge. I I think to me again, it's it's it's, and I think we are we are agree on this. Is like well, maybe then direct trade is just not a good term. Um, but what matters is what you just told me. It's like I I know what the producers, I know the producer, I'm engaged, I've known him for a long time, uh, we work with an importer, we know what the cost structures are, we know what everybody's role in this in the value chain, and we are being, um, you know, and, and everybody's involved and on the same page. That That is more important to me than say, yeah. um, you know, well, I, you know, can you put direct trade on, on the label or not? The model is more important than the way you def you name the model, I guess. I guess that's what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah, and I mean, there's some direct trade coffees that I, I know other people in the industry have paid pennies for and not paid the, you know, the fair market price for. And, you know, like, 
have still got that thing of like this is direct and they may have gone directly doesn't mm. mean they did a good job right um, and i guess that that's the other problem with it absolutely um, we're coming up to like the hour and, I, and there's so much more i want to ask you but, um <laughs> I, I think the, the one thing that i'm going to limit down to what because i've got a list of questions but uh-huh. what do you think the future of certifications are do you think there's a future for them do you think there's a future for you know the direct trade model as well I think that, yeah, there, there is definitely a future insofar as we're going to keep trying to figure out what are the most uh, effective sourcing models to, to fix the, 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 the huge uh, problems that, that, that we have. I think that, the, you know, the, the most important thing in order for these, for both certifications and sort of the direct traders uh, to remain relevant is to be able to continue adapting uh, to the challenges. Um, in a way, I feel like we can't keep them in a vacuum and say, well, this is what the certification stands for and, 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 and that's it. Because the world of coffee is changing, you know, uh, dynamics at origin are changing, consumer trends are changing. So unless these models become flexible and adaptable and to a certain extent resilient, just like we ask our producers to be resilient, I think um, uh, the, 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 these companies or certifications, sorry, and models need to be resilient too and be continue to stay to stay relevant. Um, otherwise, they'll they they will they will become obsolete. They will no longer address the issue um, uh, that we care about. I give you an example, and I hopefully I'm not opening up a can of worms. I was at the at the in Seattle uh, two weeks ago, and 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 I was uh, meeting with uh, uh, actually certified. Uh, coffee producer organizations. I a lot of them are friends because I we used to uh, uh, work together back when I was at Sustainable Harvest. And uh, in my consulting work, I'm 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 starting to work more and more in 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 the fine fine cocoa industry. And I've heard that there is uh, the, that that uh, there are some coffee producers that because of climate change um, they find it harder and harder to grow arabica coffee, and that they are switching from arabica. To, to cocoa, um, and it was kind of a you know water cooler chat type and and so forth. But I started to think there something is happening, and so I I, I was in Seattle and and I spoke with uh, multiple producer organizations, and I mean big, relevant, famous, well established uh, smallholders cooperatives from Nicaragua, from Honduras, from Peru, and they've all told me the same thing. They're all planting cocoa so coffee at lower elevation between 600 to a thousand meters is being uprooted and more and more farmers are now planting cocoa now i don't want to like you know i don't want to sound like oh here you go another problem that we need to deal with another whistleblower but what i'm saying is clearly climate when i asked why the all the producers were like well climate change you know they looked at me like hello which planet have you lived on for the last year or so (laughs) climate change we can't grow arabica and so you see, it's like all of a sudden we, we talk about sourcing models, what's fair, what's not fair, and what producers should do. And producers just do things, right? They're like, okay, we mm-hmm. can grow co- coffee, coffee out, cocoa in. And so those are the things that in order for us to, to stay relevant, we need to keep a pulse uh, in producing countries and, and think about what needs, to, what needs to happen in origin in order to, to fix the issue. So being relevant and understanding origin dynamics is 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 important otherwise it's just sort of an empty discussion that we're having 
in the northern side of the equator while you know uh at origin people just move on i think that i I mean i think the one thing uh from from those kind of it sounds scary you know people ripping out coffee and planting cocoa but i think if that means that the coffee price goes up like it can only be a positive thing like we've paid way too little for way too long for for coffee and you know that's been because of an overproduction and and of course climate change is a terrible thing and and we don't want it but i i want producers to get paid properly for the work that they're doing um and until there's until that oversupply issue is addressed it's it's never going to be i just hope it doesn't go too far and i can't get delicious coffee because i'm selfish like that <laughs> but it's, uh, I hope it's, that it's, it's it's a scary future um okay to wrap up i'm going to ask you uh, a fairly complicated question i guess okay. but, um so as an industry as a specialty coffee industry mm-hmm. do you think we're doing a good job and what can we learn from like the big business commodity coffee coffee side? Because obviously you're seeing much, you know, in the roles that you're doing, mm-hmm. you're seeing more of that than when Sustainable Harvest, you were in that specialty yeah. bubble. So, yeah, to, mm-hmm. to recap, do you think we're doing a good job? And what do you think we can learn from the, the, the bigger commodity industry? That's a really good question. Are we doing a good job? I think that we we are trying and yeah. we try to when we meet at events like Seattle and 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 back here in Europe uh, as well. I, I I think we try to address the issues. Um, so I think that we are we are aware that we need to be <laughs> that we need to keep being aware. Um, and 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 I think compared to the discussion that we had ten years ago, I think that we have become more sophisticated at addressing issues and finding uh, solutions or just creating the right platforms, the right space to be able to uh, to address um, uh, problems. Um, in terms of what we could do better, I mean, of course, there's always a huge learning curve. Um, if you look at the commodity trading, um, I think that there is um, what we, the big difference that I find is that I think that they, they are able to invest uh, resources um, uh, in, in more effectively, more efficiently, um, and they are able to gather informations and numbers uh, in a more in the fastest way, in the fastest way for sure. So I think for us, we in a way, I, sometimes I feel that we have a little bit of a NGO approach uh, to to coffee. Like we want to do good and we have good intentions, uh, but then we are not uh, professionalized enough, for example, in measuring impact. I mean, we're doing a much better job than maybe 10 years ago. Um, but tracking, uh, monetizing, and, and quantifying our impact and, and monetizing our, our impact at origin, I think we can do a better job. Uh, we could definitely be faster at addressing issues. Great example, when we had the Roya breakout a few years ago, there was a massive industry response. And I think that we, we as an industry, we addressed the issue and we were able to do something about it relatively, relatively quickly. Uh, when it comes to climate change, uh, I think that um, we are a little bit more um, dispersed in our in 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 our initiatives and uh you know we haven't really come up with with uh enough enough strategies to tackle the issue so i think that we're learning our way but uh, we're definitely we need to be more laser focused i think and i think that that's 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 probably something that uh, makes us different from the commodity trading and also understanding trading and dynamics and market and pricing mechanisms 
could also help. I mean, um, I do a lot of price risk management and I have to say that sometimes I feel producers know more about price risk management than, than uh, let's say, a lot of roasters, uh, right? So we sort of think, oh, you know, uh, we don't need to know what the C does because we pay above C prices. But when it comes to scale, um, understanding um, not only how the C behaves, but understanding how we can, understanding the, the risk exposure and how we can minimize risk exposures in our value chains becomes incredibly relevant. The more you grow as a company, uh, the more your consumers or your stake shareholders will ask you to become efficient um, in 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 your pricing, and and eventually you will, you start looking you stop paying more and more attention to the C. And so I think that considering how fast our industry is growing, it still surprises me how little some roasters know about pricers management. It, it, that that is so spooky because. Um, I, uh, about two weeks ago, I actually started to write a blog post. I'm halfway through on the about how I never used to follow the market, and I used to be quite proud of not following the the, the C right. price and right. say, you know, it bears no resemblance to my business. I pay way above that, but actually, recently, I've been paying much more attention to it, um, right. just because I, I I think it is important to have that overall uh, understanding of what price changes the impact that has an origin on the thinking of a, of a producer uh, and particularly when you're dealing with cooperatives you know or, or, or small holders it really does have an effect a, a huge effect and you know we say oh well we pay way above but yeah i'm way more demanding and i'm way more picky about what i have and i'm, I'm asking them to do a lot lot more right. um you know so it doesn't take a massive spike i remember the the three dollars five a pound c right, price like right. you know bringing some of the contracts i had very close to you know very close to what we were paying and it was a difficult time um because all of a sudden i had to pay lots of attention to it and i think it is important to have that uh, holistic view of what the options are for a coffee producer to sell their coffee and looking at what you're asking them is it worth the the extra work and value they're adding to the price mm -hmm. that you're paying and, and i think it is important to have that overall view yeah and we can't do away without the sea you know i think a, a lot of people are asking what can we just decommoditize coffee and uh it, it's it's mind-boggling for me and and i don't know if we can ever do that but until then then that's what the you know new york sets the price for arabica and whether or not you are as a business tied to that price it doesn't matter as an industry we still are um and producers definitely tied to the sea because you no know, every single producer will always have a little bit of commodity coffee uh that they need to sell every year and so uh it will make a huge difference if the sea is below the cost of production or above the cost of productions and and how you manage that risk exposure is really really important um and at the same time i just think that, that uh, as an industry uh realizing the price risk is it's an important component of, of 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 good business practices is is you know that's where we need to go and i don't think we're there yet i think again we're making a lot of improvements but there's still a lot to learn there a lot to learn it's funny a conversation with um, a producer we work with in el salvador and he was saying to me that um you know it's great that you pay the price you pay steve he says but i only i make i either break even or make profit by what the sea's doing for the coffee you won't buy correct and, you know, right, like, right it was right it on. was it was a real eye-opener to me i was just like i never thought of it like that 
Right. And it's like, yeah, that's where it becomes important. And, and now we've started to have a conversation about how we address that. So, you know, if market is down, is there a way that we can, you know, offset that within our pricing structure? And it's about having a more fluid pricing structure than having, you know, oh, well, we pay this price, so that's okay. Um, that's that's not enough. Um, you know, you, you have to have that holistic view of everything that's going on and where all the coffee is going. Sarah, I could do this for ages. Like honestly, I could carry this on forever. It's been such an interesting talk, and th this is exactly the conversation I knew I could have with you that we couldn't have in those panel discussions because you've you've got to talk to the other boring people in the panel as well. Um, but you, you've been an absolute superstar. Thank you so much for coming on. I I cannot thank you enough. I'm sure this will get lots and lots of listens. Um, thank oh, you so brilliant. much for 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 being part of it. No, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm a huge fan of, of Temper Tantrum and I've sit on your panels and it's true. We always hope we can get more out of these panels, but trust me, the panels that you guys put together are some of the best panels I've ever been on. I mean, the work that you put into it, uh, is sort of behind the curtains is, is huge and it really, it really reflects on, on the quality. Um, so I'm, I also love sitting on your panels cause I feel like we are giving so much resources um, to really perform our best. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I love talking about this stuff. So getting an hour to, to discuss this is also a, a real luxury. So thank you for having me. Now, and, and all of that backstage work, I will take all of the credit, but it's all Jennifer. I do absolutely nothing. She tells me <laughs> where to stand, what to say, yeah, and what to do. Yeah, she's a star. Um, she is amazing. She's absolutely amazing. Uh, listen, Sarah, thank you very, very much. And um, thank you. yeah, I, I look forward to you being on something in the future. I in fact, I think next time we're not going to get you on a panel. We're going to get you doing something uh, on your own because I'm, I know you've got so many more interesting things to say. But awesome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank and you. Thank you to listening at home and um, over and out. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli.